0: You probably wouldn't be surprised to hear that one of the most Googled search things in the Christian world are those queries that try to get an insight into the will of God in a person's life. Search terms like Do I need to forgive everyone that does wrong to me? What does God think about swearing or lying? Should a Christian marry another Christian? But just imagine for a moment what it would be like if we didn't need to search for these things on Google and instead that we were given a book or rather a collection of 66 books that set out before us how to live the Christian life. Well this evening I'm excited to start a new teaching series in the New Testament book of James because James is a book of the Bible that is jam-packed full of advice And wisdom for the Christian so please turn with me now to our book this evening the book of James if you have a church Bible then it starts on page 1011 many of you will be familiar and I suspect will have read this short book of the Bible many times the whole book made up of only five chapters can actually be read in under 20 minutes. In terms of genre we're dealing with a New Testament epistle or or a letter which can be found sandwiched between the book of Hebrews and the two letters written by Peter. Now it isn't positioned towards the back of the Bible because it was one of the last books to be written. In fact it's worth noting that the biblical canon hasn't been put together chronologically. In fact, it's commonly agreed by scholars that this letter, the letter of James, found towards the back of the Bible, is actually one of the first New Testament books to be written. We know this because evidence suggests, because of the the lack of mention of the the milestone event known as the Jerusalem Council, which we had as our Bible reading a few moments ago from Acts chapter 15. And we know for certain that this event happened in the year forty nine. Now, being such a crucial event in the early church, it's highly unlikely that in a letter addressed to scattered Jewish believers that James would have left out something so significant if that event had already happened. This would have been the equivalent of writing a letter to a church 500 years ago and not having any mention of the Reformation or the ramifications of that event. It just wouldn't make sense. So as we start to look at this book together, it's important for us to lay down some solid foundations this evening. And in doing so, a good first question for us to ask is, who is James? Who was the human author of this book of the Bible and who exactly was he writing to? The letters that we have contained within the Bible are named in a mixture of ways, aren't they? Sometimes we have them named after the author of that letter, such as Peter and John's letters, or in other cases, the book is named after the person or the group of people that that letter is written to, and we can see that in Paul's letters, don't we? We do not have a book of the Bible called Paul, but we do have First and Second Timothy or Titus. These were named after the recipients of a letter. We also have books named after groups of people, such as Galatians, which was to a group of churches in modern day turkey so which is it for us Is James the author or the recipient did he write the letter or did he receive the letter well we don't have to look far to find out we find out both who the author is and who his recipients are in our very first verse and that's largely what we're going to be focusing on today as we set out the landscape for this book chapter one verse one James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So James is the author and his letter is written to the dispersion and we'll come on to who those recipients were a little later. But before we do, let's think about the author. It's an important question because we know of a couple of Jameses, don't we? So which James is our author? On first look, there are two candidates that may spring to mind. Maybe our minds go to James, the son of Zebedee. He, of course, is the brother of the Apostle John, the disciple that Jesus loved. The brothers that were also known as the sons of thunder due to their fiery tempers, a reputation that you could argue was well-deserved. You may remember the time when the disciples were facing some opposition from a local village and the brothers James and John asked Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to destroy them all. That's exactly the sort of talk that would earn you the nickname the Sons of Thunder. But if you dig a little deeper you'll see that this hot-headed apostle has to be ruled out from writing this book very early on you remember that in acts chapter 12 we're told of how the apostle james was killed by the sword of herod so this eliminates him from having been our author purely based on the fact that he wasn't alive so this then leaves us with the james that is indeed the author of this book of the bible and what a fascinating story this is the james that wrote this book of the bible is the half-brother of jesus Is a half brother, of course, because they share the same mother in Mary. However, Jesus was conceived of the Spirit, and James was conceived by Joseph. But, like so many people we learn about in the Bible, this isn't a a simple, straightforward story. Jesus came from a big family. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, some of Jesus' siblings are named for us, aren't they? We have James joseph simon and jude and there is mention of his sisters plural so he had at least six siblings and for those of you that are legal eyed you you may notice that james is always listed as first when mentioned with his brothers which means it's likely that he was the eldest of jesus's younger brothers and being older of course means that he had more time to to hold a front row seat to observe the life of jesus now you'd be forgiven, wouldn't you, for thinking that someone that grew up and spent so much time with the Son of God himself would have been the most faith-filled, strongest follower that existed on the planet. But for a long time, this was not the case. James, along with the rest of Jesus' brothers, all initially rejected him. For we are told in Scripture, not even his brothers believed in him even during christ's ministry after nearly three years of miracles and teaching not to mention living a perfect life james his half-brother remained a skeptic imagine that how can it be that you can be so close to the truth and yet miss something so obvious this may resonate with us in our lives today Wives or husbands, sons or daughters, brothers or sisters and and close friends, born again and transformed into a new person, a whole new personality. New affections, a committed life indwelt by the Holy Spirit bearing fruit. And yet it's possible and sometimes the case that those that are closest to seeing this testimony of God's grace right before their very eyes miss it and they continue to have scowls on their eyes it may be true here at south street also there could be some that have been attending this church for months or years they've heard hundreds of sermons seen the lord answer countless prayers and yet they too could remain outside how sad and devastating this is In the Lord's providence, through his word, we get a glimpse of the penny finally dropping for James, our author. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 7, Paul names James as one to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. Seeing his previously dead brother walking and talking, the lights suddenly come on. James is granted repentance and faith and finally he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God sent to save people from their sins. Now is this the moment of new birth for James? His faith no longer in himself but his repentant heart now turned towards his Lord and Saviour. We see this is so because shortly after this event, James is to be found numbered with the apostles and the wider group of 120 early Christians at Pentecost. Here they are praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit, and it seems from this day forward, our author author of this book never looks back. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, remarks on James's personality, which gives us an insight into the life-giving and life-changing work of the holy spirit he notes that by disposition james was a very very serious man and he was well known for being just this is how he became known as meant to many as james for just and finally he notes and how would you like to have this reputation he was known to have knees that were like a camel's hoof due to such frequent prayer a life transformed by grace. This once prayerless man, now known for having worn out knees from praying so much. And what an encouraging testimony this is. Now, This might sound very close to, to home for some of us this evening. Maybe we have an unbelieving brother or sister. I'm sure that all of us have some family members and friends that are not yet in Christ. It's possible isn't it that for decades you've been praying for them, speaking to them, striving to be a good Christian witness by the life that you live and here is an example of when somebody encounters Christ. In a moment his eternal destination is changed forever. This once stony hearted brother of the Lord Is granted repentance and faith. Just look at how God goes on to use him. It's less than 10 years later. Who does the Apostle Paul search out when he makes his way to Jerusalem? Peter and, of course, James. James goes on to become the head of the church in Jerusalem. And this was definitely no easy task. As we will see a little later, this was a time of extreme persecution and violence. This was also a foundational time for laying out sound doctrine and fighting off those that came in like wolves, trying to bring in false teaching. If you think back to the reading we had earlier, just one of those challenges came in the way of works and what role that they played in the sequence of salvation. Salvation. It's laid out for us clearly in the book of Galatians when these Judaizers sneaked into the church in Turkey. They started to add circumcision, didn't they? And and as a work needing to be saved. They wanted Gentile believers to take on the Jewish law that they themselves could not keep. Effectively, they were saying, ah, yes, you are saved by grace, but you also need to keep the law to be saved. In their case, it was circumcision, but here we are 2,000 years later, and we still have false teachers doing exactly the same thing today, don't we? Ah, yes, you're saved by grace, but then you have to do X amount of hours each week in the ministry. Or, ah, yes, you're saved by grace, but you have to sow X amount of money into someone's ministry. Here, the Judaizers were trying to insert works into the gospel message, which would have been like adding a droplet of poison into a barrel of water it would have made the whole thing deadly it becomes a man-centered gospel that does not save so this was a huge theologically crucial and complicated dispute threatening to tear the early church in two but did you notice in our reading how james dealt with it he listened he went to scripture and then he held firm. Such clear leadership was very, very unusual at this time. It wasn't uncommon to see speakers of this day try to keep favour with all parties. It was often a case of safety by numbers. You didn't want to upset anyone. You would hear speakers and governors flatter their hearers with flowery accolades. They would do this with long speeches and stories which eventually finally got round to alluding to whatever it was that they wanted to communicate. But not so with James. The speech we have recorded is simple, clear and to the point. And more importantly, we see him stand up for the truth. That God is in fact saving Gentiles as well as Jews and it is by the by grace alone through faith alone. A little later, Paul goes on to describe James as a pillar of the church, a wise man of high reputation, yet another testimony of God's grace in how the Lord chooses to use people for his glory. And it's this wisdom that we will see pour out of the letter as we read it together over the coming months. James James is writing he meets his readers in their suffering he has advice for how Christians should deal with the very hardest of scenarios through illness and death and poverty he confronts Christians in our speech our wealth and our pride the book of James is all about application as he speaks into these real daily struggles by offering short golden nuggets on how christians should live now it's actually because this book is so rich that people have struggled to see how this book could have been actually written by our james people have argued that a simple galilean man like james the half-brother of jesus would never have been able to write a letter like this in greek but we know that that isn't actually an issue many jews at this time out of necessity learned to speak both greek and aramaic and i say necessity for the same reason today that if you were to to go on holiday to a place where they receive a a lot of english-speaking tourists and you'll find almost all of the locals speaking english as well as their native tongue wouldn't you this is a matter of convenience so that when you order your cheese omelette and chips you don't have to try and work out how to order it in spanish You have to remember that nazareth lay on this busy trade route and this was a huge source of income for the people living there it's highly probable that james would have been taught greek as a boy and he would have got plenty of practice later in life as he had daily contact with greek speaking believers we get a small taste of that contact in acts don't we when the greek speaking widows were being left out of a daily distribution of food for the poor Now another argument that some commentators have raised over the authorship of this book, over history, is the fact that James just does not name drop like you might imagine he would. I mean, if you or I were the half-brother of Jesus, then I'm pretty sure that all of Eastbourne would know that, right? It would just fall off of your lips in every conversation, wouldn't it? Have you ever met someone that couldn't wait to to let you know who they were or what they had done? The do-you-know-who-I-am type of person? But James is different. Just like Paul, he recognises that knowing Jesus according to the flesh holds no lasting value. It's why you will hear us say time and time again that salvation doesn't just come from knowing some stories about Jesus from the Bible. Salvation doesn't come from knowing about him. Salvation comes by being known by him and by being found in Christ. Remember when Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There's also the point that James was so well known as the head of the church in Jerusalem, but he didn't need to go around telling everyone who he was and who he was related to. You know that truly important people don't need to do that, do they? People already know. Clearly James was someone who knew that when he introduced himself, his identity would have been well known enough that his letter would have been welcomed and read carefully. He didn't have to do the work that Paul had to do sometimes and lay out his testimony or credentials to gain an audience. And so he gives, just the simplest of greetings, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So now let's move our focus to who James was writing to. Who are the 12 tribes in the dispersion? In a literal sense, this refers to ethnic Jews who lived outside of Judea. We see that in John chapter 7, verse 35. But here, James is specifically writing to Jewish Christians, ethnic Jews that no longer lived in Israel and that believed in Jesus as Messiah. And what is the cause of the dispersion? Well, firstly and largely, by persecution. Do you remember the hatred of Claudius, who commanded that all the Jews were to depart from Rome? But this wasn't just a one-off event. The Jewish believers were made to feel unwelcome wherever they settled. The Jews and among them the Gentile Christians were thrown out of everywhere. Just as John was thrown out of Ephesus and others out of Alexandria. And it's easy just to say this and then to move on, isn't it? But can you imagine the personal, the individual trauma caused by having to leave your homes, your businesses, everything you've ever worked for, your family and friends, much like we see with the the people of Ukraine seeking refuge in other lands today. Imagine it for us. If there was a law made tomorrow that all Christians had to leave Sussex and we were all given 24 hours to do so. Some of us may go to friends or family in London or Tunbridge Wells or back up north to Manchester. Some may choose to be with family in Wales, Nigeria or Poland and all of a sudden our Christian family here in Eastbourne is scattered across the nations. But we must remember and this is so important that we have a God who is sovereign and he knows the beginning from the end and he is a God of love. And it is with this in mind that even with this huge cost James can see the bigger eternal picture and I just find this so exciting As one commentator said, the dispersion of the Israelites was a divinely ordered means of distributing Christianity across the world. The pilgrim troops of the law overnight became caravans of the gospel. Just as commanded by Christ, Christians were taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And interestingly, the reach and transmission of the gospel message was incredible. There were scattered believers in North Africa, in Libya, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Cyprus, Crete, Turkey, Greece, Macedonia, and Italy. In fact, the well-known historian Josephus wrote that these believers had already made their way into every known city, and it's not easy to find any place in the known world of that time which had not received this nation and its message. Clearly, this was a tough, tough, but exciting time to be a Christian. There was no time to be sentimental for the things that they left behind. They knew that if you were a Christian, it didn't matter where they lived. They were near to God, for he is a God that is close to hand. When a man loses his dwelling, he does not lose his interest in Christ. And for us today, we can increasingly feel that it's a, a hard time to be a Christian here in the Western world, can't we? And for some, it really is. But if we're honest, for most of us living here in the UK in 2022, we don't need no persecution like this, do we? But the recipients of this letter, they knew this too well. Christians and Jewish Christians in particular, were chased out of society. They moved people on with violence. They were economically made to go hungry as it became illegal to sell them food or drink. And they became poor as no one was allowed to trade with them. The tap of life was being turned off as they were forced to move on. And this was very very emotional and personal business for James it's likely that some of these believers facing these hardships and now scattered abroad would have been his friends people that he discipled himself the Christian here this evening what the enemies of God meant for evil the Lord turned to good wherever they went Every nation along came their gospel hope. And just like that, the gospel was being proclaimed around the world. Tough, tough time. And yet, James continues verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Notice the word whenever, not if. Not if you face trials of many kinds. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now just like it was 2,000 years ago, if you've spent any time at all as a Christian, you'll know that it's often one of enduring hardships. It can be and is often tough. The encouragement here from James is to look at the eternal big picture and in doing so, trials can become a joy a joy and he also notes that there is a personal benefit to the believer in becoming more spiritually mature and growing in perseverance which we'll look at next time but this big picture here is look at how the gospel is being spread now i know that some here in our own church family face situations where they need to move home Could it be that the Lord has a purpose in your move? Could it be that although things may seem uncertain right now, that in fact the Lord is moving you so that you can indeed be a vessel of the gospel message in in new surroundings, with new neighbours and new friends? Some may be facing the prospect of losing a job, and where one door closes, the Lord is opening another, and again... Are you able to look at that this evening and see what God is doing? How often is there a really hard season in our lives? At the time, we may wonder where the Lord is. But it isn't until you come through that season and then look back that you can see God's fingerprints everywhere, can't you? Doors closed, doors open, the right conversation or meeting just the right person at just the right time. We have to keep our eyes on Christ when we go through these trials. We have a God that is working in every detail. It reminds me of a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trace his heart. if you are in a season of displacement where doors seem to be closing is this being done to make you more like Christ is this being done for the advancement of the gospel it might be when we talk about the gospel advancing in in recent years the media have gone out of their way haven't they to, to present to us how quickly things spread during lockdown, it seems that we were given maps on a daily or hourly basis to show us the spread of the virus. One day it's announced that someone has tested positive in a, in a small city somewhere. I think Brighton got the blame at one point, didn't it? Two days later, five positive cases. After that, 15 cases and then the neighbouring city. Two weeks later, hundreds of cases. And it begins popping up all over the place, all around the world. But this picture is also true of your and my evangelism. You may be used by the Lord to give a gospel tract or to explain the gospel to someone that then becomes a Christian. After a little time, he or she may tell two or three others that end up becoming saved. They then tell three others who become saved and so on. And all from that one tract that you were faithful to give out, in the Lord's hand, Could spark a revival. It's with these eternal glasses on. That James can say. No listen. It's not about the temporary things. Of this world. Yes you've given up relationships. Jobs. Businesses. Homes. Money. But these are all temporary things. That will be burnt up. On that last day. He says count it as joy." My brothers and sisters, as when these things are taken from you, it's then that your faith is tested. It's then that given this testing, that you can be confident if you are in Christ. We know, don't we, that sometimes we have to lose things to really see what's important, don't we? And for those that are believers here this evening or watching online, we know what's important it isn't these creaturely things it's for the, cre- the creator it's not the gifts it's the giver and if any of these things even if they are inherently good things if they are getting in the way between you and the lord then count it as joy as it disappears from your life and why because it's all a vapor it's a mist that's all that stuff is. It is Christ that we truly need. It is for our sin to be dealt with and for the broken relationship with God the Father that needs to be restored. It's for sin that has fractured and broken the relationship between me and you and God that needs to be paid for. It's a relationship that needs to be restored and the only way for, for that to be so isn't by collecting more stuff. Or by doing good things it's by understanding that we are guilty of not treating God as we should in our lives that we have all sinned against a holy 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 God and yet knowing this Jesus willingly came to earth fully God and fully man having lived a perfect life he died and was risen again so that he can lovingly credit his righteousness to the repentant sinner by faith that's what this life is all about we are here to worship god and to enjoy him forever come to him today if you haven't already and if you have continue to grow in grace and the love of our lord jesus day by day let's pray